So Anne and I were married for less than a year when we made the move to Denver. It, it was our plan from the beginning. We would go there so that I could attend seminary so that I could become a pastor. And uh, my mom and dad in that first year of our marriage in their motorhome took us out to Denver. We towed our one car behind the motorhome, packed full with uh, our few belongings, our mattresses wrapped tight and uh, strapped to the top of that car. And what didn't fit in the car somehow was stowed away in that motorhome. And it was a good trip. Uh, And I don't remember uh, where we were when it happened, but at some point as we traveled, we knew that we were seeing the Colorado Rockies. For a while, we had wondered if what we were seeing was mountains at all or whether it was something else like like clouds or haze on the horizon. But as we traveled, the scene resolved itself and it became clear that it was. There were the mountains that we had expected to see, and yet they appeared so small and they were so far off. And, and they grew the closer we got. And, and, and that, that was when you begin to get some idea of their true majesty. For, for a long time as we traveled and were looking at those mountains, there was, there was just no depth perception. You couldn't tell which peaks were closer and which were far, uh, further away. In, in a way, often the distance like that, the different mountains looked like just one jagged ridge. We knew it wasn't so, but, but that's the way it appeared. And that, I, I think you'll see, is a pretty good illustration of what we talked about last week and how it relates to what we're going to talk about today. Now, last week, we looked at the first verse of a famous two-verse prophecy about the Messiah. The prophecy is found in the book of Isaiah in chapter 9, and I would invite you to join me there now if you want uh, in your Bibles, but we'll have the verses up on the screens on either side of me. And last week, we considered verse 6, and this week we're going to talk about verse 7. Verse 6 had to do with the incarnation, when the eternal Son of God became a man born in a lowly stable. That was the first Christmas. This week I talked with the kids at Little Lamb, and I told them, did you know there was a time when there was no Christmas? And about every one of them was just shocked. And I told them the story about the first Christmas. That's what verse 6 of Isaiah Uh, deals with. I want to read that to you and remind you of what it says. For to us a child is born, uh, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. That's Isaiah 9, 6. And we saw last week that the son had to be given because he has always existed. So he was born as a man in that stable to a virgin, which is another prophecy or fulfillment of prophecy uh, in Isaiah that we're not going to go into this morning. But we saw then that he would take responsibility for us. That word government, uh, if you were here, you're going to remember this, but that word government means authority and biblical authority always 
involves responsibility. So you could read that phrase that we just read. The son would bear responsibility for us on his shoulders. And then, finally, those four names tell us that this son, which was given, the child that was born is none other than God. Uh, For those names that we just looked at can apply to no one but God. Now, that was the first coming of Christ. That was the incarnation when God became a man. Verse 7 has to do with the return of Christ to this earth, which we refer to as the second coming. So the first and second coming of Christ are kind of like those mountains we talked about. They're separated, not in distance, but in time. You have the first coming and the second coming. But from Isaiah's day, you couldn't see that there was a separation. It looked like just one thing, like those mountains looked like just one jagged ridge from a long way away. Uh, It's clear to us now. Uh, We know that now. We're on the other side of that first coming. And we're much nearer to the second coming. And I wonder how many of you are wanting to ask me, well, when is that going to (laughs) happen? And all I can tell you is we don't know, but I can say this much because the Bible says that Jesus is already standing at the door. Last week, we looked at the incarnation, the first Christmas, and today we're going to look at verse 7 that tells us something of what it will be like when Jesus Christ returns. It, it tells us of things as they will be, uh, which were set in motion by that first Christmas. And so let's begin uh, with the first sentence of verse 7, the one that tells us that in the kingdom of God, things will just get better and better. So we read, of the greatness of his government and peace There will be no end. Now, many things are going to happen when Jesus Christ returns, but the first thing this passage tells us, as it looks forward in time, uh, both in Isaiah's day and in our day, the first thing it says to us is that the things will just get better and better. Now, now that word greatness, which we just read, would be better translated uh, uh, from the Hebrew, the way it's usually translated, using the word increase. So Isaiah is stating here that there will be no end to the increase of his government and peace. And I just simply summarize that by saying things just get better and better. Now, that, the, the, part, the peace part of that phrase we just read is something I think that all of us are okay. But when we think about that government part, well, maybe not so much. I want to assure you it'll be good. And we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But I want to, I want to come back to that. And before we even talk about that, I want to talk to you first about this idea of things getting better and better. Uh, this isn't our normal experience in life, is it? I mean, it's quite the opposite. Uh, we're very used to stuff wearing out or running out or being used up. We're used to things uh, breaking or malfunctioning or becoming obsolete. Other things growing old and failing and ultimately dying, even us and the people that we love. Now, sin's a cause of that, certainly, and we know that. 
but it doesn't make it any easier. And yet that is our experience. You take something as simple as the smell of a new car. That's a nice smell, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, Although I just read this past week that some manufacturers are wanting to do away with that new car smell. Why? (laughs) I mean, it's nice smell, isn't it? Or have I just been conditioned to think so? In any case, I, I don't know, but that new car smell doesn't last. It fades away. It's not long before that new car isn't new anymore, and pretty soon it, it smells like an old car, which at best is neutral. And the way some people treat their car, it might actually smell like a garbage truck on a hot day. That fading away of good things is the norm for our world. And so it's hard for us to imagine that pleasant smell always remaining. No matter how old the car is or how many times they've driven it or how far, that our car would smell just as nice as the day we first bought it. And if it's hard for us to imagine that, then it's almost impossible for us to conceive of that nice smell getting even better the longer we drive the car. It's so contrary to our experience. Well, we're not really talking about cars here, are we? I mean, mean, we, we, we are talking about our lives as they seem to always be fading away. That new car smell is just an allegory for life. And yet here in this passage, We're being told that everything in the kingdom of God, contrary to our normal experience, will just keep getting better and better. There will be no end to the increase. Can I tell you there are some things in this life that do get better as time goes on? And every one of them that does, that does get better, They're all related to the kingdom of God. Our love for others grows. Our relationship with God deepens. We become more like Christ. Not automatically, no. I mean, we have our part to play. We have to walk with God. But if we do, those things will grow with our faith. I know we don't often see it. Somehow we're just so busy with life we don't realize it. But, but it's true. You know, if I look this way and I look ahead to where I'm going, I know I have so, so far to go. But if I take a little bit of time and I look back to where I've come from, I realize I've come a long, long way. I am not that man that I was back then. I wasn't that, the man, I'm not the man I was before I came to Christ. I'm not even the man I was right after I came to him. We don't often see it, but, but that's the truth of, of the matter. So there are some things that we can see in this life that just get better and better. It's just a small taste. In those ways, we anticipate here and now, in a really small way, the kingdom of God and what it's going to be like. So when our Lord returns, Isaiah tells us things will get better and better. There will be no end to the, end to the increase. Now what I want to do is I, I want to go back and talk about government and peace here that this, this passage mentioned. And, and in this text, the terms 
government and peace together are kind of a catch-all. Uh, they form something referred to in grammar as a merism. That is, it's a figure of speech where the parts refer to the whole. And so government and peace, or the increase of them, sums up all of the life in the kingdom of God. And peace is the easy part of that equation. I mean, last week we talked about it. We saw that that word peace in our passage is, is a Jewish word, shalom. And that means not only the uh, absence of conflict, it, 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 it more properly refers to fullness or completeness or wholeness or goodness. And in the kingdom of God, there will be no end of shalom, no end to the increase of the wholeness and the goodness. That's, that's the easy part. But the Bible's idea of government is harder to grasp. We're going to have to do a little work to understand this because all we know at this point is human government. And, and when it comes to those, the best we can hope for is a government which promotes the common welfare of its people. And by welfare, you understand that I, I, I mean the common good or the well-being of the people. And so because there's sin in our world, it also means that it is necessary for a government to provide for a common defense against enemies and to fairly administer just laws because not all people are just. And then again, because of sin, uh, even governments founded on solid principles like those I just mentioned, principles like our government was founded upon. Even such governments can be corrupted. Corrupt people can rise to high positions and find ways to circumvent laws and, and, and bring misery to large swaths of their society while enriching themselves. And everyone seems to know that, but not everyone understands why. Sin is the ultimate cause, as we've already indicated. But, but, but what I want us to see here, what I'm trying to, to do right now is to help us understand how the text is using that word government. So let's recognize this. If there was no sin to deal with, there would be no need for a common defense. <laughs> There would be uh, no law that was unjust. There wouldn't even be a need for the administration of law. And there also wouldn't be any corrupt people who could corrupt government. But you can see, can't you, that there might always be a need to promote the welfare of the people. And that's really what Isaiah is trying getting at here. There will be no end to the increase of that. That which promotes the welfare or the good of God's people. What the text is telling us is, if our world now, for the most part, is working against us, then everything will work for us. This is a small example of what I'm talking about. Today, our culture uh, works against us believers as we try to teach our children our values, the values of the Bible. Our government in the classrooms and in other ways promotes ideas that are antithetical to our Christian beliefs. We see that as a kind of corruption of our government. But a hundred years ago in this country, our culture was our ally. 
It, it reinforced the things we were teaching at home. You sent your kid to school or other places knowing the adults there and even other children had the same values as you. Now, our government may have failed at those times in other ways, but not there. Then things were working for the believer. A, a hundred years ago, our government, uh, in, in that way, well, it was more like the kingdom of God would be. In, in the kingdom of God, there will be no failures, no breaches of trust. All will be as it should be. The creation itself, ruled by God, will promote the welfare, the good, the well-being of all of God's people. Are you with me? Okay, I see a few heads shaking. Good, good. All right. So that's how verse 7 begins. Everything will get better and better, and everything under God's rule will promote the well-being of his people. Peace, that is fullness and goodness and completeness, completeness will always be on the increase. Life will be abundant as well as unending. That's what we have to look forward to. Now, the next sentence in our passage tells us more about the character of the kingdom. It tells us that it will be both just and right. And so we read in that second sentence, he, meaning the child that was born, Jesus, will reign, that's the second coming, on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Now, there's a whole lot going on here, but in that kingdom, justice and righteousness will abound. Those words uh, describe to us what it will be like there. But what, what do we mean by them? By, by those words, justice and righteousness. Or, or rather, maybe the right question is, is, what does the Bible mean by them? For our ide- ideas about both of them are often twisted by sin. Now, humankind's fallen condition, justice becomes mere revenge or condemnation. It, it's what we wish on our enemies uh, while we are willing to give ourselves a pass on our sins and failures and foibles and Right, It's like the man who curses the uh, bad drivers on the road, but when he's the brunt of someone's ire because of his driving, well, he excuses himself, saying, nobody's perfect, get over it, we all make mistakes. And yet the truth is, for justice to be just, it must be applied equally across the board. It allows no favors. And then to righteousness, uh, we, we don't understand that. We begin to equate righteousness with self-righteousness or a holier-than-thou attitude. And there are plenty of examples of both in our world. But that twist in our human nature predisposes people to think or understand righteousness whenever they see it as that kind of thing. And, and some are almost like Pavlovian trained dogs that salivate at the sound of a bell. Whenever they, they re- meet real righteousness, they bark at it. And they growl apathets under their breath like a, that self-satisfied prig, or, or they think they're so much better than we do. Those are distortions, and they're far too common in our world. And yet justice and righteousness are simple and beautiful and bright, and even happy. You know, both the Old Testament and the New Testament 
at, at the thought of God's justice rejoices. And both testaments call us to worship God because of his righteousness. So if we clear away all the junk from our thoughts and, 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 and we look on the positive side, what is justice? What do we mean by that? Well, maybe, maybe the best thing we can know about it, and, and the hardest, is that it has two sides. Justice is expressed either as mercy or judgment. And sometimes Christians don't even understand that. Sometimes Christians will say something like this, you don't want God's justice, you want his mercy. Now, we understand what they're trying to say there. None of us can stand up before God on our own power. But somehow when they do that, they, they're making justice and mercy opposed to one another. But they're not. There is no competition between justice and mercy. Justice is expressed either as mercy or judgment. Justice forgives the repentant sinner, and rejoices to do that. That's justice expressed as mercy. You remember John says when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Ju justice, though, on the other hand, it, it condemns those who refuses to repent. It doesn't take any pleasure in it, but it condemns them. Our God is just. He wants all people to turn from their sin and follow him. He wants to show them mercy. But he's not going to ignore sin. He gave his son to take it away. And if we spurn him and his love, well, there's only one thing for people like that. In both cases, though, justice is just and good and right. And it's, all of its actions are good. Uh, and, and you, I, I think, you can identify with both sides of justice, can't you? Let, let, me, let me see if I can help you to see how that's so. You watch a movie, and there's a really bad guy in that movie. And he's causing all sorts of havoc, bringing awful things into people's lives. And, and, and in the end, he gets it, Right? And we know it's right that he gets it. We understand it. We feel it. And, and then in another movie, someone makes a mess of their life. They bring grief on their loved ones. And, and yet when he or she gets back on track, you root for them. You feel good about that, don't you? See, we were made in the image of God, and those sin affects every part of us. That sense of justice in both of its expressions still resonates in our soul. The bad guy getting it, and the, and the person who makes a mess turning from that mess and following God. And what about righteousness? Well, again, I think for us, the best way to understand that at the heart is that righteousness simply means being right with God and others. It's living in such a way that there's nothing between you and others uh, or you and God. And again, you know what I'm talking about here. Um, you have had a disagreement with your spouse just before you're going to some event or maybe Sunday morning on the way to church. How often does that happen? 
happens, doesn't it? And, and you get there, you get to that event, or you get to church, and you put the best face on it. Uh, but you know that thing, that disagreement that's between the two of you, it's hanging out there, and it's casting a shadow everywhere. It affects everything else around you, doesn't it? See, righteousness means not having those things between us. And righteousness means even more than that. It's a life that's lived for the good of others and to honor God. And those times when you and your spouse are encouraging each other, when you remember all of those good things about him or her that that you loved and that attracted you to them, you're glad. And it makes a difference in you, doesn't it? It makes a difference in the way you see the world. It makes a difference in the way you interact with it. Everything seems so much better. See, righteousness is the foundation of all true relationships. And when it comes to the kingdom of God, uh, the forgiven will dwell in it. The wicked will not be found there to corrupt that which is good. Its people will be righteous without a hint of sin which distorts everything in our lives. There will be nothing dividing us. Uh, We'll rejoice in others and in God and we will be, in a sense, one close, happy family. You see, we could liken righteousness and justice to the solid bedrock upon which the kingdom of God is built. Or we could also say that, uh, that those things are the timbers and the framing of the building, or maybe even better, the, the stone from which the house is built. Indeed, we could say that everything in that structure will be constructed of justice and righteousness, and built by them too. They're the plumb line, the measuring rod, the level which makes everything square and straight. Or we could say that the kingdom of God, justice and righteousness, is like the air we breathe, the food we eat, and the water we drink. We could say that the kingdom of God produces them, grows them, yields them. Justice and righteousness are are, are like the atoms and molecules of the kingdom. How could it be any other way? How could it be any other way? They are attributes of the eternal God. They must be. And where they are, where God is, they are. And in abundance and power. But we're not there yet. We're not going to get there on our own power. That fatal flaw in us, the sin, well, some people have embraced it and thrown their lot in it, into it, uh, with it. But even those who belong to God who put their faith in Christ, we still sin. And if there were no bad people in this world, I'm talking about the wicked people who are committed to a course of evil, even if there were none of those, we'd still make a bungle of everything. That's why we need Jesus Christ to come back. That's how that second sentence that we read began. When Jesus Christ comes back, he will establish God's kingdom on earth. Again, I want to read it. He will reign upon David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. David's throne was a symbol of the rule of the Messiah, David's kingdom was the emblem of God's eternal rule. And the good that began on that first Christmas will be completed and fulfilled in the kingdom. Jesus is the one 
who will establish it. And once he establishes it, he's going to uphold it. He will establish God's kingdom on earth. He is the only one who can. There have been many attempts. If you know history, you know there have been many attempts to establish a paradise here on earth. And somehow, surprise, surprise, right? It never works. <laughs> uh, mostly they cause more harm than any good that they might do. Jim Jones promised a new order with him as the head. And eventually, as in his ego and arrogance and overweening pride, he led his people to drink cyanide-laced Kool-Aid and Guyana. Uh, those who refused were shot or made to drink it anyway. David Koresh instituted a kingdom in Waco, Texas, as with him as the Messiah, and he turned young women and uh, girls into sex slaves, and almost every one of them ended up dying when our government tried to burn them out. Move in Philadelphia, the same kind of thing. Three entire blocks in the city of brotherly love were demolished by fire. Communism and socialism are always sold on the premise that they will bring equality and prosperity, and yet history demonstrates over and over again for more than 100 years and over 100 attempts in 100 different countries that every time either one has ever tried, not only does it fail dramatically, but there is a corresponding increase in misery. Venezuela is a prime and current example, an oil-rich country, and yet their money is worth less than tissue paper. There's no food on the shelves. People are fleeing if they have the strength, and neighboring countries are refusing them entrance now because they and their resources are already overextended. And yet those in power there cling to the power no matter how many people might suffer and die because of it. Cuba was a placeholder of misery before uh, Venezuela, and it continues to emerge distant second. And still we have politicians in our country today who are saying, well, socialism has never really been tried before. We can make a paradise here on earth. They have no sense of history or they ignore it. And they have an awfully high opinion of themselves, don't they? They think they will succeed where everyone else has failed. Proclaiming themselves wise, they become fools. Or maybe they just want the power. But that which happens whenever communism or socialism is, is tried always happens. The power the people gain plays on the sin within them and corrupts them further. And evil people already in the world worm their way into places of power. Communism and socialism never advance the welfare of the people. Instead, people are there to advance communism and socialism. It's how it always is. Human beings will never set up a paradise on earth. You know, we couldn't even keep the one we were given in the beginning before there was any sin in the world. But when Jesus Christ returns, he will establish the kingdom. He will uphold it, and it will never end. You know the story of Robin Hood? You know, King Richard is away fighting in the Crusades, and his evil brother John has usurped the throne. His rule is one that brings on misery and deprivation, and good people are trampled underfoot. Robin Hood and his merry men, right? They fight against him the best way they can, but all of the good people are waiting. They're waiting and they're hoping and they're longing for the return of King Richard. 
when the king comes back, they know he'll make everything right. And that story resonates with us because deep down inside, we're longing for our king to come back and make everything right. We, we will never bring a paradise here on this earth. Only God can do that. That's what the last sentence in Isaiah 9-7 is in essence saying, and the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish that. Not you or I, not any program or person or power or government in this world will usher into a paradise. Only God can do that. And at just the right time, he will. His zeal his passion, his keenness, his intensity, his strength will make it happen. And when it happens, when God acts, when he finally moves to set up his kingdom, when Jesus Christ returns, everything will be changed in the blink of an eye. And Christ will rule. The increase of his government, that which does good for his people, it will continue to grow and increase. The increase in peace, our fullness and completeness and wholeness will never end. Life will be abundant and grow in abundance. Everyone will be right with everyone else and with God. Nothing will stand between us. We will rejoice in one another and in God himself. And justice will be ensure there. It will ensure no evil of any kind will be there to cast a shadow on the, our lives. And only those who know God's mercy and goodness will dwell there. We're not going to make any of that happen. The zeal of God Almighty, the return of the Son, will bring about the kingdom of God. We simply will enjoy all of God's gracious gifts to us. The kingdom is coming. It began in a stable over 2,000 years ago. Do you know what? ties Isaiah 9-6 and 9-7 together. The, the thing that connects that first Christmas with the completion of uh, the eternal kingdom that we've been talking about. You know what ties those two things together? It's us. You and, you and me. When, when, Christ, when Christ first came, he brought his kingdom with him. He established it then in the hearts of his people. He rules in us now. It's not perfect. Not yet. We're still subject to sin. But we are the best good in this world. We are the salt and light of this world. That's what Jesus said. Theologians say the kingdom is both now and not yet. It exists in us now, and it will one day swallow up everything else. And wherever you go as a child of God, you take the kingdom with you. The kingdom is coming. It, it, it began in a stable over 2,000 years ago. The son was given. The child was born. He took responsibility for us that he was God in the flesh, and he went to the cross, and he died for us and rose from the grave never to die again. And he's coming back. He's coming back again. And he's going to set up his kingdom, and it will happen in the blink of an eye.
I have just one question here. Are you ready? Are you ready? Will that day come upon you and you turn around and you find that you have been left behind because all your life you've ignored God? All your life you've turned your back on him and his kingdom. You put the Son of God off. You put the cross away. You attended to the things that you wanted to do all your life long. And then, and then, and then, what then? Where you leave here and you die of a heart attack or you're in an accident and you find yourself standing before God. Are you ready? Are you ready? Would you pray with me, please? Father, it's my prayer that um, if there's anybody here today who's not ready, that you would help them to realize it. And if they know that, Lord, I pray that they wouldn't put, wouldn't put it off for another moment. Decisions, decisions in the valley of decisions. And one day there's no place for a decision again. Please, Lord, move in their hearts. And for the rest of us who know you, Lord, we know what you did on that cross. We know what it meant when Jesus came that first time. And we know what it'll mean when he comes again. And we stand between those events. We're the ones who stand in that gap. We're the ones that have that good news. We're the salt. We're the light. Strengthen us as we go from here today and every day to follow to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.